0: Hello, and welcome to Tales from the Ruther Library, a podcast coming directly from the Walter P. Ruther Library of Labor and Urban Affairs at Wayne State University in the heart of the Cultural Center of Detroit, Michigan. I am Dan Galadner, an archivist at the Ruther Library, and I will be your host, along with Troy, our amazing sound engineer. Say hello, Troy.
1: Salutation.
0: This is our inaugural podcast. So first, I would like to introduce you to the Ruther Library. Although we are called a library... We're actually an archive with over 1,600 collections available to the public. Our mission is to collect and document the American labor movement, the metro area of Detroit and Wayne State University. We have personal papers of rank and file members as well as presidents of the unions, labor writers, activists, and organizations related to unions. And we collect the history of modern metro Detroit area as well. Modern, I'm talking about the 20th, 21st century of Detroit. Subjects are range from housing issues, civil rights issues, segregation, city development, government and school issues. And of course, I would be remiss not to mention the collection of the 150-year-young Wayne State University. Yay Wayne! The collection also documents the Wayne State University starting as one small building in the 1800s into this large campus that we are broadcasting from today. All these documents, papers, and boxes are all backed up by over a million photographs, videos, and audio tapes in our audiovisual department. There are also well over 600 oral histories here that document the range of collections that we have. Um, We are your one-stop shopping for labor history, for modern history of Detroit, and about Wayne State University. So you might say that we have a lot of collections, lots of shelves, and lots of staff that you'll be getting to know over the next couple of years as we do this podcast. So basically, this podcast will shed a light on these collections that are buried in our stacks. We will have some original historical stories and interviews with some of the historians that sit in our very cold reading room, poring over the collections to find that one piece of paper that can change the course of history. So we hope these podcasts will educate and enlighten your day. So let's get started. Today's podcast is really cool. Um, They're all going to be cool, I'm sorry. But this one was one of those, wow, I had no idea. See, my area of expertise is teacher unions and education reform movements, not the farm workers. Well, I, you know, as I just described, the Ruther Library has a lot of labor history, and I'm very familiar with the farm workers. You know, I, I knew about, generally about the general history, the boycotts. I mean, I was raised without grapes. so And, um, you know, I knew the life of Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta, and I knew the name Larry Young. I did not know anything about him. So we were lucky to have an interview with Dr. Don Mabalan in November 2017. She is working on a biography of Larry and has a great story to tell us. She is an associate professor of history at San Francisco State University and has a PhD in history from Stanford University. And her research focuses on Philippine American history and the historic and cultural preservation. And she's also co-founder of the Little Manila Foundation. So we broke this interview into two parts. It seemed to go better, and our amazing sound engineer did all the work. Say hello, Troy. Ahoy. (laughs) Ahoy, hoy. The first part will be the biography of Larry Leong, a dynamic labor leader that is only now getting his due. His, his life is, was kind of forgotten within labor history, and, and it, he has a wonderful history about the labor movement. And also, there's a great immigration story here, and it all begins in the 1930s. It ends in his death in the early 1990s. You will learn why he was called Seven Fingers, which is a pretty neat story, and why Coachella is so important to the labor movement and not just a rich kid's music festival. So the one thing that I did take away from this was that, although Cesar Chavez was the face of the UFW, it Leong was considered the heart. <laughs>
1: Well, Larry comes from a province in the Philippines in the on the island of Luzon, the northernmost island, largest island in the Philippines. Um, um, and he was from a town called San Nicolas. And his ethno-linguistic group, um, he's an Ilocano. So they're uh, an ethnic group, language group from the northern part of the Philippines known for their propensity to migrate as a result of very poor agricultural conditions. They're, they... Ilocanos are on the coast of a very mountainous, rocky strip of land where the land is not very fertile. The bulk of the early part of the Filipino diaspora came from that region. People moving on to find better land, and then going to Hawaii, and then going to the mainland. So he was—he had—he um, was one of several siblings. Family poor farmers went to about fifth or sixth grade. And then had heard from a neighbor that if he went to the United States, he could go to college and become a lawyer. He wanted to become an attorney. That was his dream. And, uh, hundreds of boys from his village had come to, had gone to Hawaii and then the United States by the time he came in 1929. Um, when you look at the ship manifest, um, when he came over, he was one, he was the youngest actually, he was 15, um, but he was one of several dozen boys from his province. And I say boys because literally most of them were about 17, 18, 19, and he was the youngest at 15 um, to come over. And all of them um, having uh, been born and mostly raised under... The american empire so the united states uh conquered the philippines in 18 well the war starts in 1899 it ends technically 1902 but uh larry and his generation had gone to american public schools where they learn english they learn america is the greatest country on earth Their teachers tell them that they could pick gold up off the streets and there was a generation of filipinos that were Educated by the U.S. government, they were called pensionados, and some of them were women, pensionados. And the whole point of of that program was to bring the best and the brightest and at least some of the children of the elite to the United States, give them college educations, and then send them back to the Philippines to become the core of the civil service of the Philippines and to become – leaders and elected officials and deans of the, the, of the universities that uh, the United States was founding. So that was where Larry kind of gets this idea that I could leave the Philippines, go to America, you know, pick up gold off the streets, get my education, go back and save my village. And uh, he comes and he comes in, in uh, April of 1929. He lands in Seattle and he meets his uncle and his uncle asks to borrow five dollars from him. And that tells him everything about what he has just gotten himself into. He arrived
0: at the wrong time, didn't he?
1: He arrived right before the Great Depression, and so, you know, he didn't take into account the racism that Filipinos were going to endure, the segregation, the fact that he would be barred from citizenship. You know, he wouldn't know. He didn't know any of that. He thought this was the greatest country on earth, and. What you know? What what the hell is happening here? You know, I'm. Uh, w- so he gets to to Seattle. Um, he starts working almost immediately. Well, about a week in Seattle, and then he goes to work at uh, a lettuce farm in a rural part of Washington State, and then he gets involved in a strike there. So uh, there's a strike that happens amongst Filipinos in July of, I believe that's 1930. So he works in in uh, in the canneries he gets involved in a strike that fails and it fails because the workers are split it's white workers in and in the packing sheds and filipino workers in the fields the white workers get the raise even though they tell filipinos we won't go back to work unless you get the raise too but of course they go back to work and so very early on larry learns this lesson about uh justice, equality, fairness, what a union means. And then he goes on to, to help found a union for sardine workers uh, um, in San Pedro in Los Angeles. He um, joins the union for Alaskan salmon cannery workers that gets organized in 1936. So, um, And then becomes a leader in that union. And and that union is Local 7, then it becomes Local 37, then it becomes Yucapawa. And then, yeah, I need a chart. to That, that <laughs> union changes names a lot. So um, he pretty pretty much from the moment he steps onto American soil, he becomes part of this struggle for justice, equality and fair wages. Um, he gets married to a white woman and they I am still trying to, to find the records for that. Um, he gets married to a white woman. I think they have they have to leave the state because you're not you can't get married in California. Before 1948, uh, an interracial marriage. That's what I
0: thought, yeah.
1: And then um, he he lives in L.A. He comes to Stockton. He becomes a really respected and popular leader in Stockton. He becomes the president of the Filipino community in in Stockton. In 1935, Congress passes a law called the Repatriation Act. And it basically says, all you poor destitute Filipinos who are suffering in this depression, here's a one-way ticket back to the Philippines. Um, And you can't come back if you take this ticket. And the almost, I believe it's more than 100,000 Filipinos in Hawaii and the Philippines, Hawaii, excuse me, and the United States at the time say, no, we're going to stay here. Only about 2,000 take that one-way ticket home. And I often ask my students, well, what do you think? Why do you think Filipinos stay? And we're still trying to answer that question. But uh, in the children's book that I'm writing, um, this is the point Larry has to decide, as well as 100,000 other Filipinos, this is the most brutal work I've ever done in farm work. I can't become a citizen. I'm pushed off the streets and beaten, and there's anti-Filipino racial violence. Why do they stay? Why does he stay after 1935? And so, in the children's book, he—I have him, you know—writing home, telling his girlfriend to go ahead and get married because he leaves. He leaves a, a, a sweetheart in the Philippines, and he's like, "Oh, don't worry, I'll be back in a few years," you know, and and then we'll, I'll be rich and we'll get married. And that's the moment that he has to say. Um, I'm staying here, and you can go ahead and marry somebody else.
0: And he's just 20, 21 years yeah, old, making this decision about he, his future life. Yeah, I mean,
1: he comes at 15 yeah. in 1929, and so he's like 1920 when he makes that decision. And before that, I mean, he also loses three fingers in a in a really terrible accident that he describes. He does. He did a long oral history interview with Jacques Levy. He described in in that interview. How he lost his three fingers. He was like many others in during the Depression, riding a freight train, and in um, in upstate Washington, and working on the railroad. And he's like, "Oh, I was trying to go to this other job. He jumped off the train. His hand got caught in the door, and ripped off three of his fingers."
0: Hence why he's called Seven Fingers.
1: Exactly. So, And and one of the kind of – there's an urban myth, and I may have helped to propagate it because an old-timer told me this. Oh, he must have lost it in a salmon cannery accident, which made sense, right? He worked in in the salmon – and Salmon, as, as we say it, the, all the Filipinos and our dis, the descendants of those who worked there, the Salmon canneries, um, it, it, it makes sense. Oh, yeah, of course, it must be a Salmon cannery accident. But he was riding trains and he almost died. He lost so much blood and then he recovered. And then, uh, yeah. So, I mean, he is absolutely from really the first year in America, just tough and resilient and a survivor.
0: Yeah, seriously. I mean, you've, you've resolved now the big question a lot of people were asking. All these things I've been reading about. Well how he lost how his fingers. How he lost his fingers. three fingers. Yeah. yeah. From the lettuce to asparagus strike to cannery to now we know the railroads. Yeah. Finally. And the railroads, okay. So Th- we can stop this podcast now. We have we have to <laughs> accomplish know, the what mystery. we need. So he, he's tough, he's rough. Um cigar smoking, chewing organizer. And
1: many wife having. <laughs> and many wife having.
0: He had six total, right?
1: Uh, we're still trying to figure that out. Okay. I, and that's something that I'm trying to, you know, it's it's interesting in his papers, you know, I, I literally need a whiteboard to kind of diagram it out because there are several papers that will come up and say, well, I'm in the process of divorce. And I'm like, which one was he divorcing at this point? <laughs> because I'm comparing, you know, I'm comparing records that you can get online that show divorces and marriages and, you know, and then I'm like, who, who which wife is he talking about now? I mean, because he literally, I mean, he is... Tireless. I mean, he's like organizing people and the next day getting married and the next day organizing people and the next day getting divorced and the next day I mean, He He's is, a passionate guy. He
0: was dynamic, <laughs> a dynamo. He was doing everything.
1: He was doing it all. He and was finally he, it in.
0: he becomes president of AWOC. Um how well, actually
1: he... he doesn't become pres he never becomes president of AWOK. He
0: becomes a... He
1: becomes the lead organizer of Delano.
0: Okay, director. so but wasn't he part of AWOC?
1: He was. So, so, And this is actually a really interesting story that, that I tell in my first book. Um, AWOC is founded in Stockton in 1959, as we know, because the AFL-CIO was enduring a ton of pressure. But if you go back even more, and Stockton becomes this hub for labor organizing for a number of reasons. You have the Spanish Mission Band. Um, Those four priests that come out of St. Patrick's Seminary in Menlo Park and then spread out around Northern California. Um, Ralph Dugan, of course, goes to San Jose, and then he meets a young organizer named Cesar Chavez. Thomas McCullough comes to Stockton, and he meets a young organizer named Dolores Huerta. uh, But also with Dolores Huerta, he meets an organizer named Rudy Delvo. Um, who had been part, who had been longtime friends with Larry at Leung. And they ran in the same kind of labor organizing circles. They had been, been part of the Local 7. And Local 7, that same salmon cannery, had tried to branch out into asparagus organizing. They said, why not? It's the same membership. It's literally the same membership. They go from asparagus and Stockton. They all come to Alaska. Why shouldn't we, this union, you, you know, branch out? And they were, at that time, they were local seven um, food, tobacco, and agricultural workers, CIO at the time. Mm-hmm. And they they do a huge 1948 asparagus strike that fails. Um, and similar things happen in that strike that happened in 1965. They get thrown out of their camps. <clears throat> Excuse me. But a lot of the same core organizers continue to try to keep the flame going for a farm workers' union, despite the fact that after 1948-49, Filipino farm labor organizing falls apart because of red-baiting. A lot of the leaders of the, of the Local 7 Union uh, get people like Ernesto Mangawang and Chris Monsalves in particular get uh, arrested and targeted for deportation. Um, it's, a much, it's just a much longer story, but long story short, um, Ernie Mangawang, um, who his wife actually has some letters in Larry's uh, papers, Takes his case all the way to Supreme Court, and he says, um, "McCarran-Walter Act, of course, tries to, you know, targets him. Well, you're an alien, you're a communist, you should be deported." And he says, "Actually, I was a communist, but it was at the time that that the Philippines was a U.S. colony, so I was not an alien while I was a communist." And he wins his case. In any case, this is not a time that that formerly communist Filipino organizers are are going to be making a lot of waves, right? So. Fast forward, uh, Rudy Delvo and Dolores Huerta and Thomas McCullough start an organization called AWA, Agricultural Workers Association. They pressure um, AFL CIO and, and also Congress to do something about farm workers. And then AWOC is born from that. The AFL CIO creates AWOC and they send um, they send organizers to Stockton. And Rudy Delvo is hired as one of the early organizers of AWOC, along with Loris Huerta as a secretary. Rudy Delvo approaches Larry Itleung and says, hey, this is the union we've been waiting for. And there's actually a letter in, uh, in the AWOC files that he sends to Chris Monsalves. Um, who had, they had, you know they had worked together for decades, and again he was one of the radical Filipino labor organizers that had been targeted for deportation and arrested. Survived, was still a, a president of the the Alaskan Salmon cannery Union. He writes him in 1959. And he says, "We've just started this new union in Stockton. This is the one that's going to make the change." And imagine saying this in 1960. They've been striking since 1930, mm-hmm. 1929. So he brings Larry in. Larry gets hired as an organizer. And it's it's a, a, a rocky – AWOC has a rocky history where in 1962, the AFL-CIO tries to shut them down. They get funded again. Larry really um, is one of their most charismatic and effective organizers because he's been doing it for so long and everybody knows him and everybody loves him. And uh, then he gets sent down to, to Delano in 19 19- – 61, 62. I'm still trying to kind of pin that date down. And it's hard because people are always moving. It's like, you'll find a letter from Larry saying, I'm here in Delano. And then you look at the records and his kid is born in Stockton <laughs> like the next year, right? <laughs> so, you know, they're always moving, right? With the crops. He's working in asparagus. He's working, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So, so that's, I think, one of the most more interesting things I think about this history is that is the fact that Gil Padilla was working in the CSO in Stockton also. Um, and Doris Huerta goes from... Um, CSO to the AWOC and then moves down to to Delano and the NFWA and how all of these organizers kind of knew each other or knew of each other and worked together for many years and then the grape strike starts
0: so walk us through that first grape strike Okay. Here he goes. Larry. Larry calls them all into a. Was it a union hall or was it a?
1: It was the Filipino Hall.
0: That's right. And
1: so May 1965, um, Pete Manuel and Ben Gaines, who were organizers with AWOC in in the Southern region under Larry, had um, had called the the strike in Coachella, and they won the dollar forty an hour. Or, yeah, dollar forty an hour, twenty five cents a box uh, battle, but they did not win union recognition. Uh, and it was, it was also a, a violent struggle where people got arrested. And, um, and so they, they assumed that when they got to, to Delano, that they would get the same rate, but the farmers did not even reply. And so September 7th, they held a huge meeting at Filipino hall on Glenwood street in Delano. And, uh, and so several hundred members are packed in the hall and, Lots of different Filipino languages are being spoken. Ilocano, which is where Larry is from, there's Tagalog, there's Visayan. I mean, there's a, over 100 languages in the Philippines. And those are kind of the three major ones, plus English. And and then the union is not just Filipino. I mean, there's there are African-American members and white members, too, Puerto Rican members. So they argue pretty... Uh, It's a lengthy argument, but they finally they finally vote unanimously to go on strike, and so the strike starts the next day, and so leaders emerge from that strike. Um, So you have you have Larry at the head, and you have Ben Gines and Pete Manuel, and um, Philip Vera Cruz and Pete Velasco. I think one of the Um, really important records of that strike is the strike journal that Pete Velasco keeps that's in Box 12 of the AWOC papers. I know that box by heart now. Um, You know, where and it's a very he's a very sensitive guy. I mean, you see that even in his just little notes to Caesar. He's like, hey, I'm your money guy because he was the head of the defense fund. You know, there's very sweet interactions that that Mono Pete Velasco has with everybody in the UFW. He's the longest serving Filipino on the board. I mean, he doesn't retire until the mid 90s so he had a deep deep love for for the union and for, he was particularly close to Caesar, but, um, he says some really, really sweet things. You know, he says, our lovable Larry at leong our, our leader. And he talks about the food being brought in and the visitors who are coming and, you know, how resolved everyone is to, to seeing the strike through. So that's what I think one of the most important documents for me to understand the mindset and the tenacity.
0: It lets you understand the tenderness they had for each other and that union solidarity brotherhood, exactly. sisterhood.
1: Exactly the brotherhood, the sisterhood. Yeah, how much people were willing to sacrifice for one another. Something I think is also really important to look at that I've I've talked about in some other pieces of of writing that I've done is is the solidarity that's developed in the strike kitchen. So that's something I've also been looking at in in the papers here is how people talk about how they ate together, how they fed one another, and how important that was to keep the strike going.
0: You know, the army is run by this food. And then we lose an army.
1: Yeah, and this is also a way that Filipinos and Mexicans f- form these bonds of solidarity with one another. I mean, Gil Padilla, in oral histories he's done in the past, and in oral history that he'd done with me talks about this is the first time Filipinos and Mexicans sat down like brothers.
0: Now this is interesting. Now Larry and Awok go to Cesar Chavez. I mean, of course, there's a relationship with Dolores already, and Gil, and and Gil, and they take the the chance of bringing in a heavily Mexican. Union, mm-hmm. if it was a union, then, with heavy Filipino workers association, workers as association, say, yeah. and they were usually used against each other in the on the on the fields. And here was a chance to bring them together. It's it sounded like a huge risk because there was more Mexicans in that who would be taking over and probably yeah. What was the mindset there, and how did and walk us through? I keep saying walk us through, but yeah, just yeah like yeah. how did no, this develop? And,
1: and this is something that's that's so important that I'm still trying to get at in in my research and in my oral histories is Larry's Larry's strategic move, right, to go to to go to Caesar and say, "You have to join us," because the strike was getting broken by Mexican scabs. And he saw clearly that they would never win if if it was broken by these scabs and vice versa. And Caesar knew it, too. <clears throat> and he said, well, when, you know, Larry said, well, when you go on strike, and, and this is the part that is hard to nail down exactly what they said to each other, right? Because Dolores will say she's the one that brokered it. And Gil will say that he's the one that brokered it, right? And, of course, there was no recorder around except there are— Statements that they both gave to reporters at the time, at what they said to each other, and I know that Caesar said, "Well, we're not ready for a strike," you know, and and Dolores says, "Well, we had seventy-five dollars in our strike fund. How could we go on strike?" Um, you know, but they have that big meeting in Guadalupe Hall, I mean Guadalupe, Guadalupe Church, and they all vote, um, really swayed by how violent the growers had been to the Filipinos in that first week throwing them out of their camps, hiring goons. I think one of the most heartbreaking stories that I've, I've read in the archives as well as in other secondary sources are when, you know, they, they shut off the gas, they shut off the lights, they shut off the water, and these poor Filipino men who have nowhere else to go are trying to cook their food over an open flame, and the hired goons come and kick over their, their pots of food, which is heartbreaking if if you understand how hard it is to feed oneself when you're on strike and you're not making any money. and You know, so anyway, so... Um, I think it it sheds a, uh, it, there's a lot of complexity with how Larry and the other Filipinos must have felt at saying, okay, in order for everyone to win, not just Filipino farm workers, but every farm worker to win, we're going to have to come together. And in that coming together, is going to mean a lot of sacrifice. And there were a number of Filipinos, Ben Gines and Pete Manuel, who left the union. Hundreds of Filipinos who said, you know, um... At different junctures, left the union. Um, at the merger, you know, who said, "Okay, no, we're we're not getting together, and this is a social movement, and I'm not for a social movement. I'm for a union."
0: That was the huge divide with with the creation of the UFW. Here is a heavy Catholic social movement. Um, we're gonna go on hunger strikes. We're gonna march. Where you bring in the Filipinos who've been bargaining with the shotgun on the table.
1: Literally say Literally. you know. Exactly.
0: I mean how did they I mean these
1: are these are Filipinos that went to work with, with you know, guns and knives because they had since the late nineteen twenties, because they had to battle um, you know, Dust Bowl migrants, they had to battle the Klan, they had to battle everybody to try to keep their jobs. You know, and here they were being told, Okay, we're going to march three hundred sixty miles to Sacramento behind the behind a statue of, of – the Guadalupe, you know, the, the Virgen de Guadalupe. And one of the things my father said that – and my father came in 1963, um, and his dad had been here since 1929. So there's a lot of transnational families happening in the Filipino community. But his elders were were Larry's peers. A lot of the labor contractors that I see in the awak papers in the, the, in the first strike were my dad's – more people I called my uncles, my dad's friends in Stockton. And so he says – I said, well, what did you guys all think when – you know, when he led the strike to the march to Sacramento, he said, uh, "Marching 360 miles behind a statue, of the Virgin Mary is not a strike." Mm-hmm. You know, and and you also see that with with folks in AFL CIO and, and and other farmers, they're like, "We want to we want to uh, bargain with a real union, not not this social movement thing." So you know, you have Filipinos who were like. Um, why can't we just shoot the guard that just hit me <laughs> and you have you have first you have a uh, um firsthand accounts of people who were like yeah and then they saw the the guard you know or the 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 grower roughing up um one of the Mexican strikers and then all the Filipinos pulled their knives out <laughs> and, then, and then somebody had to be like stop CBS is here. <laughs> Everybody put your guns away, you know. So I mean the, there were um cultural issues. I mean you also have to understand a lot of these guys they're either former communists or they're hardcore lefties and not not a really big church. I mean they're they're nominally catholic. They know what's happening. They know what what a mass is. They know who Virgin Mary is, you know but for the most part they're they're bachelors that aren't really church going people and then all of a sudden their union becomes infused with uh catholic social justice movement type activities and people and so this is i mean my point being is that um larry with the merger i feel his goal was a a farm a, a union for farm workers and he said i'm willing to sacrifice a lot of um, my own power and my identity in the public sphere and whatever fame I may get from this, who cares about it, as long as there's a, a union for farm workers.
0: And that's why he basically decided to be essentially number two. He,
1: he, he took over, he, yeah, he said, I'll be number two. Obviously, the NFWA is bigger. And then the media was really drawn to Cesar Chavez. You know, he becomes the face of the union. And that works in the early part of the ufw when so much depends on the media and the boycott by 1971 after the contracts are signed larry's like i'm a flunky what's my role here i have to go through a layer of five different assistants to even get to caesar i mean i I was going through the papers yesterday um some of the papers uh, that dealt with the the resignation and one of his frustrations was the fact that he couldn't even talk to Caesar personally before he resigned because he couldn't get through all the layers of bureaucracy to get to Caesar. And he said, this is what's wrong with this union. You know." And he says it's not just that that the media sees it as Caesar's union, but Caesar runs it as Caesar's union.
0: Essentially why he says that why he was a member and organizer and leader of unions was for justice and dignity – and he didn't see the justice and dignity within a, a corporate union or business union. So it just seems like you're saying. And what he seems to have said he's well, lost you know, his heart and soul.
1: Well, I think he he saw a the union being very becoming very undemocratic. He saw the roots of what many other scholars are just beginning to dare to write about in the last few years, about what the UFW was like in the last Ten years. I think he saw the writing on the wall very early, um, you know, and, and Philip Veracruz. I mean, in the letter that Philip Veracruz writes to um, Mono Larry's young assistant, it's very it's an indictment, uh, at least in Philip's eyes, of, of Larry's unwillingness to kind of go with the program. And then Philip Veracruz himself leaves you know, five, six years later with the same complaints. This is an undemocratic union. I have no voice here, you know. And so I think when he when he writes his book in 1992, um, even though Larry and Philip really never saw eye to eye and obviously um, uh, kind of pointed the finger at one another, what was happening in the union, what was going wrong, um, I think came to a better understanding towards the end of his life and as he was writing his book as to what, Monal Larry was going through and kind of saying, you know, uh, this union isn't isn't being run in an efficient way. It's not being run in a just way. I think one of mono Larry's biggest uh, complaints was the fact that the that the headquarters was moved to La Paz, and he said, "How could a, a union that's about its workers move far away from its workers?" And he saw Caesar kind of putting a wall around himself and kind of trying to build a movement versus trying to build a union. And so, yeah, we could, we could, go, yeah. We could go on and on it's about also that. Kind
0: of also, you're talking about the, the, the distance from the union being for who we are. Mm-hmm. Um, I also saw this in a way how they, they set up the contract with the union halls versus the foreman. Yes. Style, Foreman style. They knew the people. They knew who they were. You're migratory workers. You're going up and down the West Coast. And the Filipino men who've been working these fields decades yeah. knew the foreman. Some were fil- uh, Filipino foremen.
1: Most of them were Filipino foremen. And I, and I really see that – I mean it's something that I was really looking for in, in the in the papers. It just how – particularly in the Mexican community, the foremen and the contractors were really abusive figures – in the Filipino community, um, there were abusive figures. There, there were contractors who ran away with people's money. I mean, there were lots of terrible stories about that. At the same time, my dad was a foreman. Um, and a lot of my uncles that I, that I see in the AWOC papers, they were foremen. They were the ones who were, you know, dealing with, with Larry. They were really like father figures and older brothers in the Filipino community. They're the ones who who made sure that, that they saved those jobs for their for you know, for their crew that was gonna come in Delano. I mean, that was why there was so much loyalty to the foreman and to the farmer. I mean, at the early part of the strike there were workers like, I don't want to picket my own farmer. I've been working for him for 30 years. In fact, I taught him how to grow grapes. <laughs> I mean, which was actually the truth, right? Mm-hmm. Here are these Eastern European immigrants coming in, and these Filipinos who had been working in the grapes since the mid 1920s. And they're like, yeah, this is how you grow, you know, Cabernet Sauvignon. Okay. <laughs> Let us show you how to do it, you know, you know,
0: all you Croatians. Uh, all right. Though so, there is this distance himself from the union, seventy October 15, 1971, yeah. he leaves. What's the next steps for Larry? I, you had tons of bachelor men aging in this Yeah, so,
1: so. so he starts doing the work that he had been really doing a lot on the side um, and always pretty much through his life, um, social service work. One of the... Uh, a big part of his papers here are letters that he's writing on behalf of Filipino uh, senior citizens, helping them get citizenship, helping them track down the paperwork that they need to prove residency so that they could apply for citizenship and then be able to go back and visit their families in the Philippines with a passport. You know, so you have letters that he's written to travel agencies in LA. You know, please prepare the ticket for so and so. Uh, and a letter that he writes to a family, one of our family friends in in Stockton, saying, "Okay, I have this man, and he says that you're his cousin, and you're the only one who can corroborate his arrival on this boat." And, you know, I mean, he does a lot of that, a lot of that work, um, and and tries to advocate on behalf of filipino senior citizens at the same time he's also staying very active politically he's still he's a delegate to the dnc he's sought after for his political endorsements he gets married again and has another kid (laughs) um in in this time period he has four biological kids and three stepchildren okay so he has seven total
0: Okay, I, I thought you would say something in the twenties. There, twenty. <laughs> hey, <laughs> you, know? you know, but we don't know. The
1: papers don't tell it all. <laughs> there, I'm sure he's left a trail of Itliungs up and down the valley. God, more power to you, Montel Larry.
0: That was an interview with Doctor Mubalun. Troy, did I say her name right?
1: You did.
0: Now, for the first five minutes of that interview that uh, you just heard, it. it I could not pronounce her name. I just ended up calling her Dawn. I couldn't do it anymore. So I just wanted to share that with you guys. Uh, She was a recipient of the Sam Fishman Travel Grant for 2017. The Fishman Grant provides up to $1,000 to support travel to the Ruther Library to use archival records related to the American labor movement. The award is named in honor of Sam Fishman, a former UAW and Michigan AFL-CIO leader. So- we give out about five to six a year, so if you're interested, please visit our website at www.ruther.waim.edu. Thanks for listening, everybody.
1: Tales from the Ruther Library is a production of the Walter P. Ruther Library of Labor and Urban Affairs at Wayne State University, coming to you from the heart of the Cultural Center of Detroit, Michigan. The producers of Tales from the Ruther Library are Dan Glogner and Troy Eller-English, special assistants from the Ruther Podcast Collective, including Bart Bilmer, Elizabeth Clemens, Megan Courtney, Paul Neering, and Mary Wallace. Of course, this podcast could not be done without the research and the support of the entire Ruther Library staff. To learn more about the Ruther Library, or if you have any questions, please visit our website at www.ruther.wayne.edu. Thanks for listening. Say goodbye, Dan.
0: Goodbye, Dan. Um, I'll just start at... He was instrumental in the creation of the United Farm Workers. As Cesar Chavez was the face of the UFT, Etliang was considered the heart. With us today is Dr. Don Mabalon, assistant Mabalon, professor. Mabalon, Mabalon. Mabalon? But you might
1: have, you said UFT again, so you might have to do that
0: whole thing over again. Oh, for crap. You know what? I'm New York. I'm thinking UFT, United Farm Workers.
1: What's United, United
0: UFT? United, United Federation of Teachers.
1: United Farm Technicians. Yeah, United Farm <laughs> uh,
0: for Alright. Okay. One, two, three. <laughs> As Cesar Chavez was the face of the United Farm Workers, Ithion was considered the heart. With us today is Dr. Don Mappabon? Mabalon. 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 Okay, sure. well, we'll we'll just keep that in. <laughs> <laughs>